Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. This week we are looking at a 1940 film starring Spencer Tracy called Northwest Passage or The Northwest Passage with, uh, what was the subtitle? Book One something something. <laughs> Do you remember the exact full title there? Oh, did it have a subtitle? <laughs> oh, Book One Rogers Rangers. Yes, Book One Rogers Rangers. Which is kind of funny because it's basically setting itself up for a sequel that never actually happened. It's based on a book that's kind of in two parts. So it's one book, but the book has like part one, part two. This film is right. just part one of that book. Which explains something that like I had an issue with. But now that we brought up the fact that it had a subtitle, which I completely forgot, explains it. This movie has nothing to do with the Northwest Passage. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In part two of the book, Rogers here right. goes on to explore and look for the Northwest Passage. But that doesn't happen in this film. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Because the, the whole time I'm, I'm so confused, like, why is this movie called Northwest Passage? This has absolute, they don't even mention it until, like, three quarters of the way into the movie it does it does come up twice i think it did come up once very early and then once again at the end okay maybe maybe i just missed it or or but it was like i was like this movie has absolutely nothing to do with northwest passage like why is it called that (laughs) but if it's based on a book where in the second half yeah they go to but i don't know i don't know why you don't call this movie rogers rangers (laughs) well i was right because even if you are doing a sequel you can still probably go ahead and call this rogers rangers and then call the next one Northwest Passage. Yeah. But I think, I'm guessing their plan was Northwest Passage, book one, Rogers Rangers, and then Northwest, and then the second one would also be called Northwest Passage, book two, yeah. Exploration, or whatever they would call, we'll call book two. Um, and we'll get into the exploits of uh, Rogers here as we go. But I, I, honestly, this this is a pretty solid movie. It I, I actually in, enjoyed it. It's not great, but it's, it's solid. Oh, I did not like it. You didn't like it? No. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if I've just, I've just watched enough old movies, and I've definitely seen bad ones, and I'm just like, yeah, this is, this is fine. It's fine. This, this is what you get, I guess, is maybe the way to look at it. This is what you get from movies from 1940. This is par in 1940. Yeah. I, I Yeah, you're, so you're right. In 1940, this would have been like a 5 or 6 out of 10 <laughs> movie from 1940, but like, oh, God, it's so corny. And, like, some of the acting is just, like, pretty rough. I don't know. It's just... And there, there is some stuff, like, some of the bigger set pieces with the practical effects and stuff. Like, all right, that's, kind of, that's impressive because of what they were working with in 1940. And it's one Oscar nomination was for cinematography. Right. Which you can kind of see, yeah. But, I don't know. <laughs> it was hard to watch. Okay, there, okay, so I didn't think it was hard to watch. So It's not that I think it was good, it was... I've definitely had a lot of movies from this time period where I feel like it's painful to sit through and I it's like nails on a chalkboard and I keep looking at my watch. This wasn't that. It wasn't good, but I didn't feel like I was bored ever. Oh, this was that for me. Oh, okay. I don't know if, it, don't know if I would go as far as to say it was nails on a chalkboard, but it, it wasn't, you know, actively painful, but I was I was looking at my watch. I, I was bored. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I think what shifts that though, I think it's I've noticed with movies I've rewatched that I wasn't necessarily excited to rewatch, but kind of did fit well into our podcast. I tolerated more the second time when I have that history student lens on, and I'm actively taking notes and even pausing to see if I got the names right that they said. So maybe it's that because I was maybe less watching the movie and I'm more just like studying it, and that almost makes me keep me keeps me more engaged than if I was just watching it otherwise if that makes sense yeah i don't know maybe for you that works oh okay gotcha (laughs) gotcha it's just it's so hard to watch like the super corny like hammy over the top bad acting it's so prevalent in movies from this time and i don't know if it is it is it just because like they weren't used to acting in movies yet or something (laughs) like i i don't know what the what the thing is it's hard to like 
It's hard to describe, really. But it's, I, I don't know, but I don't see how the acting in this is significantly worse than the acting in The Crucible. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe, I don't know. But yes, in the grand scheme of things, we're still not off to a great start as far as the quality of films at the beginning of this list for <laughs> American know. history. I know. We were really scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah. to find movies that were set in... Uh, <laughs> In the, in in this time period in pre pre America America yes honestly and it's a phrase that I that obviously you hear a ton but I I guess I don't know why I didn't think of earlier colonial America like people talk about colonial America that's yeah. the time period we're in that's basically pre revolution and as you get into the colonies it's colonial America and I think maybe because we don't necessarily think of Plymouth Rock when we think of colonial America we think of Jamestown Virginia or or, or Portsmouth New Hampshire that we see in the film here today. And just kind of this, these colonial cities. What we're kind of trying to do here, again, this we're running through American history in 100 or so movies. It'll definitely be over 100 movies. And there's definitely a dearth of quality choices pre-revolution. And obviously we don't need to spend a ton of time on that. Because again, we are focusing on the history of the political entity of the United States. As opposed to the geographic place. And we're just kind of, this is all kind of just precursor stuff as we're getting into the establishment of the United States. Uh, here in the next couple weeks. But I do th- want to kind of just bridge that gap. And this is a good movie for bridging that gap. We are jumping ahead quite a few decades. I think we're about 60 or so years after The Crucible now. But mm-hmm. I don't know. But I think it is kind of easy to kind of condense. You kind of go from the establishment of these colonies after a period of exploration. And Europeans are kind of like, ooh, what's this? What's this? And kind of you know seeing what's going on. Then establishing colonies. Those colonies have varying degrees of success, and then kind of you get that exponential explosion of a few spotted colonies here and there, some seeding, some failing, quickly become dozens and dozens and scores of colonies that are all now lasting and populating all of New England and down the eastern seaboard. And then time passes, decades pass, you're dealing with both the Native Americans, and then as we get into today's film, conflicts with the French, because you have the British colonies and then French colonies in Canada. And essentially what you have going on here is the English colonies, as they start to expand from the eastern coast westward into the continent, and the Canadian colonies up in like, my Canadian geography is not great, but like Nova Scotia, Newfoundland up there, and they're having success. They start migrating south and planning to push south. Mm -hmm. And then so you get to about, you know, roughly, say, the St. Lawrence River and the modern day border between Canada and the United States. Now there's conflict between French colonies and British colonies that obviously then ties into the continual butting of heads in Europe between England and France. And that's kind of why we, right. they talk about that the French-Indian War, which we get into a little bit today, is part of the larger Seven Years' War. And it's all just kind of this Britain versus France stuff going on. Yeah. We also have now almost all of the, well, at least... In this specific instance, we're getting more people that are actually born in, in well, not in, in the United States, but born in, in America. Right, right. These, yeah, a lot of these people are born in America, whereas even like last week, we talked about, you know, John Proctor came over when he was a little kid to, you know, was kind of an early right. colonist, but was still born in England. And we will talk about some people today that were born in England, but again, that's that's where you start to see this shift between... The colonists, the colonists start seeing themselves as something separate because you, we do get a new generation or two that are born over in the Americas, in North America. It's hard for them to feel as British as those born in Britain. And again, that's going to become more and more manifest here as we go. Before we get into 1759, which when this film is set, I did want to briefly... We're going to discuss the Northwest Passage today because, like, it's in the film's title, even though it doesn't play into the film here. Yeah, and it wasn't even ultimately discovered by Robert Rogers. Like, it has nothing to do with Robert Rogers, the actual one. Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, going about 100 years before this, and kind of in the time, or actually probably more than 100 years before, in the time when... Europeans were exploring this area. I did want to kind of give oh, a shout out. It's not the right word, but I want to just kind of briefly uh, give some notes on Henry Hudson, who was significant for this area, the Hudson River now in New York, the Hudson Bay up, up in Canada, because Henry Hudson was one of the early explorers. So I just wanted to kind of talk about him and the Northwest Patches. It's just kind of someone who was in this area doing stuff 100 years before uh, our story today and stuff we haven't talked about yet with American history here. So Hudson's a guy we don't know actually a lot about 
his early life. He's kind of just shows up as a historical record as someone who's just always been on ships. He just born on a boat kind of guy, lifelong sailor. And we don't really know much about him until he starts getting hired to do these expeditions as as the leader of of ships. So he's first hired by like England and the Dutch East India Company to look for the Northeast Passage, like going up over Scandinavia and trying to get around into you know Russia or whatever over there. So they're kind of looking for a Northeast Passage. And then actually in 1609, he's supposed to be doing that for you know the English or the Dutch or whatever. And he wasn't really into it. They got caught up in some ice up around Norway, and he's like, "Screw it!" and just sails out west across the Atlantic instead to look for the Northwest Passage, out, completely outside of the mandate that they hired him for. He's just like, "Whatever, this isn't working. I'm going the exact opposite direction just because I want to." <laughs> and not a lot happened on that first trip. He did actually end up on the Hudson River, which was, you know, obviously at, at some point named after him. Although Europeans were already aware of it before he was on it, but anyway. And then he goes back to England, he gets in a little hot water for not doing what he was supposed to do, and because he was under the Dutch East India Company, but England's like, whatever, we don't really care that you went against them. England then sends him back over on their behalf, and this was the trip that finds him in Hudson Bay. So this is someone I had never heard. So again, they're kind of looking for the north Northwest Passage. Again, they're trying to get around from Europe to the east. Columbus failed, you know, finds the West Indies, think he's in the East Indies. And then, the, you know, the, you get, there's, you can go all around the way around South America, but that takes too long. So it's just, it would really, really be great economically if we could get past this giant chunk of wilderness with a bunch of natives that can trade us some stuff, but aren't just, aren't a great trade market for our European goods. So how do we get quicker around to the East Indies? It would be great if we could just kind of go up Northwest through Canada and kind of connect down to the Pacific Ocean. That's that's the goal. And that's what all these explorers are looking for. But Henry Hudson, his crew basically decided, yeah, we've had enough. We want to go home. And he, his crew mutinied. I, I don't know how I missed this story. I've forgotten this story. But the crew won. Like, they boot Henry Hudson and, like, a handful of other people, I think, including Hudson's son, onto, like, a little, not lifeboat, but, you know, whatever little other boat. They take the big ship and start yeah. beating it back to England with Hudson and his crew like trying to chase after them in the little rowboat thing, you know, but the, but the big ship puts up the sails and they can't hang with them. And that's the last we know of Henry Hudson. He was stranded by his crew in Hudson Bay and never heard from again. I'm like, Jeez. I'm like, how did I never hear that story? And like, like no trace was ever found. We have, we have no idea what happened to Henry Hudson and that, and the people with him after yeah. they were abandoned by the crew that mutinied to go back to England. So he didn't find the Northwest Passage. Anyway, not super relevant to today's story, other than I thought that was a neat, neat little excerpt and kind of the history of Hudson Bay and all that kind of stuff, which is the area we are in today. Today's film uh, is set in 1759. It starts in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and basically follows a guy named Langdon Town, who is fictional. He was kind of based off of some people that the author knew who wrote the book. And he's played by Robert Young. Not someone I'm particularly familiar with, but I have heard of the show that he was famous for. He was actually the father in Father Knows Best, which is like a big TV series back in like early, early television days. And then guy playing his best friend is another kind of guy. Walter Brennan is probably on your radar from a lot of old Westerns and stuff. Just a mainstay of old Westerns that plays a town's friend in here. And then, and they're both fictional, but they do run into... What's Rogers' first name? Is it Robert Rogers or... Robert Rogers, yeah. Robert Rogers, who's played by Spencer Tracy. So he's historical, and Logan's going to talk about him here in in, uh, in detail. I think just to give a little bit more background before we get into today's story on New Hampshire itself, I kind of wanted, as we kind of get through all these colonies, and kind of at least give them a little bit of history to what's going on in these areas. Uh, New Hampshire, the natives there are all kind of part of the uh, series of uh, various... Uh, Abenaki tribes, and that is who we end up. Those, we're going to see them fight the Abenaki today. We kind of talked about there's conflict in this area between the French and the English because again, New Hampshire is just kind of right in between that British territory and French territory. So you saw a lot of conflict uh, here. Both of them began exploring this area in the 17th century. Again, makes sense. They're kind of exploring all of this area. The first settlement in New Hampshire uh, was set up about three years after the Pilgrims got to Plymouth, Massachusetts. The first permanent settlement in New Hampshire is uh, in the area that became modern-day Dover. And New Hampshire was named after Hampshire County in southern England, 
which the main city there is also Portsmouth. So they kind of just copied both over. Okay, we got Hampshire and New Hampshire, and this one's also Portsmouth. <laughs> uh, and New Hampshire is all actually initially under the control of Massachusetts. It was almost just like a, an addition to the mandate for the Massachusetts colony and all that. But there was enough conflicts between the two. They start, you know, bickering about, you know, how to do things that eventually uh, Charles II declared, hey, nope, New Hampshire is going to be its own thing. It's now its own separate autonomous colony, separate from Massachusetts. And so that's kind of how you get New Hampshire. And then by 1740, the Europeans had either driven out or killed most of the Native Americans in New Hampshire. So by 1740, New Hampshire is basically exclusively just European colonies. The Native presence is is all but eradicated. And then Portsmouth specifically, uh, despite having port in its name, it, I didn't even think about it being on the coast because I kind of forgot that New Hampshire has an Atlantic coast kind of right there just because New Hampshire is like it's oh it's west of Maine so it has that border with with Maine but right that little bit on where kind of the south tip of Maine there's that little sliver right before you get to like Connecticut or whatever that does have a coastal uh, area for New Hampshire and that's where Portsmouth is so it's kind of in this nice strategic spot between the Atlantic Ocean the Great Bay and then the Piscataqua River that forms like part of the border between Maine and New Hampshire. And Portsmouth was originally called Strawberry Bank, and then it was later renamed Portsmouth. Finally incorporated uh, as a city in 1653, about 100 years before our story today, which is kind of crazy to think about with this, again, this colonial America period. I think I always think about it being brief, but here we are still, you know, oh, we're less than 20 years from the, from the revolution, but towns like Portsmouth were a century old at that point already. I don't know, it's just kind of crazy to think that, you know, like you talked about, people were born into this world as colonists. Or, yeah, again, you could definitely see how these people then started to see themselves as way more, we're New Hampshireites or whatever, than we are English citizens. Right. It's like, it's like technically we're English citizens, but I mean, we're from New Hampshire. We don't care about right. what's going on in England. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's entirely possible that there were people that were like, quote unquote, English citizens who like, never went to England and like never knew anyone that had been to England and lived their entire life only knowing and seeing people from America, but were like technically English. Right, right. So yeah, it all it all it all kind of makes sense. So the film here today, again, follows this fictional character. Basically, him and his buddies just kind of get caught up. They have some beef with some English uh, officials in Portsmouth and end up arrested for assaulting them and then escaping from jail is that basically what it boils down to mm -hmm. yep and then they run into robert rogers who's getting ready to set out on this expedition of sorts or this uh military operation and yeah they get roped into that and then specifically and i'm gonna let logan kind of detail a lot of this here it's the real-life raid on St. Francis that took place in 1759. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole movie is based around this actual historical battle or raid, and Rogers is a real person, and the movie just kind of details that and seems to do it fairly accurately, I would think. So, Logan, why don't you talk about Rogers and the raid on St. Francis? Yeah, so Robert Rogers is, I think, the only... Is he the only actual historical figure in this movie maybe some of the british officers they mentioned are real exactly so he's the only one who has a hyperlink on wikipedia but when you're done i am going to talk about some of the other real people in this film okay well actually actually in my notes I, there there is at least one other person anyways so uh robert Rod he's the he's the big one yes uh he was born like we said in america he was born in massachusetts in 1731 the french and indian war actually wasn't his first time in you know, the military, he did actually serve in the British or not in the British Army in the New Hampshire militia during King George's War mm. um, in 1754, which was the American theater of the War of Austrian Succession is what it's called in Europe. I didn't really look into like, <laughs> what that war was about. I just know that he fought in it and he was um, a scout. And that's where he gained a lot of his like learned a lot of lessons and gained a lot of experience scouting and ranging that he would then use during the French and Indian War. Uh, but I also thought it was interesting because it's another conflict where you have 
oh, it's called this in America, and it's called this in Europe, like we talked about with the French and Indian War in America, in Europe is called the Seven Years' War. But yeah, so uh, he was in the New Hampshire militia in 1754. By 17, or in 1756, the Seven Years' War had started, and so he started recruiting soldiers for a ranger unit called Rogers Rangers. They actually they weren't the only ones. There were other groups of rangers. Basically, it's just like uh, soldiers that specialize in kind of irregular warfare, highly mobile, lightly armed, a lot of emphasis on like uh, survival tactics and camouflage. And uh, when I say highly mobile, I mean like they would, they didn't, weren't carrying a lot of stuff so they could move quickly and in small groups, but they also knew how to use stuff like snowshoes and sleds and even ice skates to let them move around really well and really quickly in Canadian winters, whereas the British Army, like your your typical British Army infantry regiment, is not moving very fast through snow. Right. So yeah, so he, like I said, he wasn't the only guy that was leading rangers, but he was by far the most famous and the most influential as far as like developing new tactics and stuff. He actually wrote these uh, 28 rules of ranging that are, I mean, you, you can you can look them up, but it's, it's a lot of stuff like uh, just general advice for how to behave and be successful when you're out ranging and, and using these kind of tactics. So, you know, stuff like uh, if you're marching on soft ground where you're likely to leave tracks, march abreast of each other to prevent the enemy from tracking you. Or if you're going to use boats, use them at night because it's really easy to see people on the water. So if you go at night, the enemy is a lot less likely to be able to see you as you're, you know, boating down the river. Stuff like that. Right. And those are actually, uh, his rules for ranging are, like, still taught to like soldiers today like in uh in ranger school. Uh-huh. Uh, the I think the the ranger handbook even has some stuff about Robert Rogers in there, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. So uh the movie itself is based on a uh specific raid against the Abenaki Indians at St. Francis in modern-day Quebec. Basically it was a kind of uh, hub or home base where the Abenaki Indians and the French were able to launch these raiding parties from. And it was so far behind the French lines that they were considered pretty safe. So Rogers was like, well, you know, I'm going to take care of this spot. I'm going to go way behind enemy lines. And basically, even though it it wasn't like a decisive military victory like taking of an important town or like you know the capital of somewhere would be it was this demonstration of capability that uh basically made them think oh nowhere is safe mm. nowhere is safe like these rangers can get to can get to anywhere and they kind of talk about in the film right they're just trying to send a message right exactly yeah. exactly so uh him and uh he starts starts out with 200 guys just like we see in the movie they, you know, trek all the way to this town. They do actually end up burning the town. I think in real life, the body count was not nearly as high as it was, like, how it was portrayed in the show, or, or even how how Rogers himself said, how successful he said the raid was. And they show some people kind of escaping into the water in the film, but that you know, they do make it seem like that was the minority of people that they, they got out. So it sounds like probably maybe everyone right. successfully fled except for the few they killed kind of thing. Well, yeah, so it says Rogers claimed to have killed 200 people, but the actual number was like 30 people. <laughs> okay. okay. And Rogers actually, so and Rogers lost 41. So he actually lost more guys. Oh, that's funny. Than well, he killed. Funny is not the right word, but yeah, that's interesting. But the raid was still considered a success because they did still win the battle if they lost more people. Or, yeah. Right. It's still considered a success because they won the battle, they burned the town, and basically it was this like psychological victory for the British. And even though the raids didn't stop, they did 
reduced dramatically after that. Okay. The the raids from the from the Abenakis and the French. Well, yeah, I say, did we mention that this was actually kind of in response specifically to some raids on col- yeah. col- uh, European colonies or British colonies were beginning raided? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So after they burned the town, they did actually run out of food. That's accurate. They were not able to get as many supplies from the town as they thought they were going to. So they had not enough supplies to make it all the way back to where they started. They ran out of food on the way back, and they did actually make it to this abandoned Fort Wentworth, just like we see in the movie. And this is something where I'm not sure why they changed this, because I think the real-life thing is more interesting and a better story and better establishes Robert Rogers as this, like, larger-than-life figure who will do anything for his men type guy. So in real life, they're not rescued by the Redcoats like we see in the movie. In the right. movie, they, they basically show up, and Robert Rogers all of a sudden gets super religious for some reason and talks about how Jesus is going to save them. And then the Redcoats show up, like, literally 30 seconds after that. It's almost like they just need to, uh, it's time to end the movie, so then it becomes this deus ex machina to come in and just kind of end their strife. Exactly. Yeah. Right. In real life... Rogers sets up, they set up camp at this Fort Whitworth, and he's like, all right, everyone, you hang out here. I'm going to go on ahead. I'm going to say, I'm going to bring back reinforcements. I'm going to save you guys. And he does. He then continues by himself to this nearby town, gets reinforcements, comes back and saves his guys. I think that's a way better story. Right. I think that's way cooler. And even the end of this film kind of sets him up as like, then kind of like seeing him walk off into the sunset kind of thing, like he'll be the great hero. Again, it's trying to set up part two for a movie, but it's like, let him be great instead of just talking about how he will be great when they changed the ending of the story right. where he actually was what he's... Yeah. Anyway. I, I don't know why they changed that. I think it was a time thing. I think it was a time thing and a rhythm thing. Again, I, I agree with you. It's the wrong call, but like, I think it was just time to end the movie. And so they ended the movie. Yeah. So I I think then make all those scenes where they're just sitting on the mountain, make that half as long. Right. And then have the cool. Right. Or here's an idea. Why don't you cut out like the four different scenes where Robert Rogers opens up the books and talks about how hot that other guy's fiance is. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we should say the main character is an artist. And so he has sketches of his fiance and Rogers is like, oh, man, a woman like that. (laughs) Yeah, which, and again, in the movie, he's not, like, being creepy. He's, like, it's him trying to inspire. basically, yeah. like, talk up this guy and inspire him and give him the motivation to keep going because he is wounded. Like, I understand what they're going for. But at a certain point, it's like, all right, cool it, bro. Like, relax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he drew, a, he drew a very pretty picture, literally. Yeah, I, I think it is kind of uh, funny, though, that, in the movie, they have the Robert Rogers character, you know, gushing over the drawings of this dude's, this other guy's girlfriend. In real life, that was Robert Rogers' wife. Wait, what? <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brown. That character. Oh! In the what? movie, <laughs> is a real person, and that's Robert Rogers' wife in real life. Okay, that's funny. I didn't see that. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I don't know why they changed that either. Why would you make up a fictional character? I, I, so... Let me back up. I understand why you would make up a fictional character to be the point of view character. Because yes. it's like, oh, he's learning about Robert Rogers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But then why have that character be married or be engaged to and at the end of the movie end up with the person who in real life is the wife of Robert Rogers? Why not make up a different a different lady? That's bizarre. <laughs> it's such a strange choice. And I, I read briefly on what part two of the book gets into, and it kind of talks about how they go back. So it's basically the first half of the book is what we see in the movie, and the second half of the book is saying they go over, the, like the, the main fictional character here and his fiance. they go over to England, and then they run into Rogers over in England, and that's how like they read me back up a few mere years or months later, and then on the back over in uh, America looking for the Northwest Passage or something. But the same kind of thing. They kind of talk about going over there with with that woman, and this like you're right. The connection just seems so odd to just oh yep, we're gonna say Rogers doesn't have the wife. This guy does. I'm like, why? Anyway, it is uh, yeah. bizarre. It's super strange. It's super strange. But yeah, 
Robert Rogers and Elizabeth Brown were <laughs> married in June of 1761. So two years after the movie takes place, Robert Rogers buries that lady who's in the movie, but is just some other guy's girlfriend. Well, man, well, now I'm curious. Maybe does shoot does the second half of the book get into like some kind of love triangle? And maybe this was, that was the setup with him kind of gushing over the picture. I don't know. That would be funny. That would be funny because then it. Because then when you go back and you watch all those scenes where he's like, oh, man, that's a that's a real fine woman you're drawing there. Like, yeah, yeah. That, those scenes then take on a different meaning. <laughs> I mean, for all I, for all I know, maybe the fictional guy dies in part two and Rogers marries her. I mean, I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No idea. They didn't make part two of the film and I'm not going to read that book. Probably <laughs> <laughs> just a couple more things about i'm not gonna go over like every battle and campaign that he fought yeah, in. Yeah. he fought in numerous battles and stuff through the rest of the french and indian war he ended up getting into like some money troubles which i think is actually due in part to the fact that he took personal responsibility for paying the men under his command oh wow okay so he would when the british government didn't give him enough money to pay all his guys he would pay them out of his own pocket and then he was telling the british government like hey guys i'm paying these dudes that are fighting your war on my dime can i get reimbursed for that and they're like uh, for sure and then just like did hmm. so he he was like in in debt he was also like apparently a super alcoholic <laughs> uh which is saying a lot because at this point in history like everybody's an alcoholic <laughs> he was like a, a really a really like super alcoholic okay but uh yeah so he wrote a stage play um and some r- published some journals basically just like anything he could do to try and make some money then he uh after the french Indian war he does return to england to try and make some money sell some of his stories you know of his exploits then he comes back to america and then tries to start making money in the fur trade and that doesn't really work out and then it's like in the 1760s, when he actually finally gets the idea to try and do the Northwest Passage, but he ends up getting entangled in this political rivalry where he's like accused of treason for the French, but then is vindicated. And but then he the revolution happens, and he initially tries to fight for the colonies. But they don't really trust him. And actually, George Washington had him arrested <laughs> because he was like, uh, you're not trustworthy and your ties to the British government are like too close. So I'm not going to trust you with commanding colonial troops. So then he says, OK, well, I don't really have anything going on. And I, I kind of just want to like be a ranger again. So what about British government? Can you guys help <laughs> me out? Can I be a British guy? And <laughs> <laughs> and they they're like yeah sure so they actually gave him an, the command of another ranger unit called the queen's rangers uh one more historical note here he was instrumental apparently in the capture of nathan hale oh huh the famous american spy give me liberty or give me death no no, oh, no sorry he's a. That's Patrick Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hale is something. Hale is, I regret that I have but one life to live, or but one life to give for my country. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Anyways, so, yeah, he fought in the revolution, tried to fight for America, but America said, mm, I don't think so. Nah. And then he's like, <laughs> okay, well, uh, British guys, can I fight for you? And then that then led the Americans to be like, see, like, what'd we say? <laughs> If we let you fight for us, it was going to be, you know, you were not going to have our, our best interests in mind. So then after the war, obviously the British lose, USA, USA. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he is forcibly retired by the army for, quote, poor health. I think because he was just like a drunk. And uh, yeah, he was, you know, he couldn't stay in America because he was like, had been instrumental in the fight against the americans persona non grata yeah right so he's like forcibly divorced from his wife by the government what so the the quote here says at washington's prompting the new hampshire state legislature passed two decrees regarding rogers one a prescription the other a divorce from his wife on the grounds of abandonment and infidelity 
okay, so that's more like a court stepping in to say, like, you guys' right. marriage should be dissolved. And she made a petition for it, right, in theory then, too? Yeah, I, I don't know the details. Right, but basically right, okay. says, like, he's getting the boot, and right. I think this was the only way that she could stay in New Hampshire. Okay. Huh. So, anyways, yeah. So he then goes back to England for a little bit, then comes back to America in 1779 to raise the King's Rangers in Nova Scotia, but he, like, his horse not in it, and again, he's a drunk, so his brother actually took over, and then he was like, he just, like, spends some time in prison, he escapes prison, he goes back to England, and just kind of die. it says dies in obscurity and debt in 1795. So, like, after 1779, which is the last time that he was, you know, in any kind of military position, he kind of just doesn't really know what to do with his life, and his alcoholism just kind of takes over. Hmm. Which is kind of, it, it almost reminds me of a, like, a more tragic and boozy version of, like, a T.E. Lawrence. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. It's like, he's constantly, you know, in, in his young life, he has all this success, you know, in battle and glory and, and ranging, and he's, like, constantly trying to find that again for the rest of his life and can't do it and is just trying to drown all his sorrows and ends up just dying destitute in, yeah in, in a bunch of debt destitute and no one knows where he's buried huh he died in london somewhere he's buried in london but yet no one knows to this day he's just like a an unmarked unmarked grave now, is there any kind of lasting legacy to the Rangers themselves? Like, talk, what about Rogers Rangers as, like, an entity? Did that outlast him then? Yeah. So, the Rogers Rangers, I don't think did. Technically, I think they were, you know, basically, when he left and the unit was dissolved, like, that's it. But, oh, okay. like, to this day, there is a unit in the British military called the Queen's Rangers who, it's not a direct thing but like they trace their lineage back to rogers rangers the same thing with the u.s like the army rangers they point to rogers rangers as like the beginning of the ranger legacy even though it's not a direct like military unit lineage thing right he is an, an inductee in the army ranger hall of fame and uh anyone if there's any listeners who have ever been to Fort Benning, either for like Ranger School or Airborne School or something, Camp Rogers on Fort Benning is named after Robert Rogers. Okay. Huh. Um, it is kind of just interesting, though, that like, so this movie is called Northwest Passage, when the movie has nothing to do with the Northwest Passage, but it's about a guy who at one point kind of maybe uh, for a little bit thought about looking for the Northwest Passage. So even Rogers himself yeah. doesn't really have that much connection to Northwest Passage either. Yeah, so it says he dispatched expeditions to search for the Northwest Passage, but, I mean, he didn't, he never found it. Like, it wasn't <laughs> discovered until 1793. And this is, I guess it, it's, it's important to make the, uh, the distinction between the Northwest Passage, like the sea route, and what mm. they were looking for, which is a Northwest Passage, like, from Detroit to the west coast somewhere portland or seattle or yeah cities that didn't exist yet but yeah yeah portland seattle yeah vancouver you know something over land right think like like lewis and clark expedition type okay. thing only only further north whereas the northwest passage i i think in common parlance is a sea route that goes like up north through like the okay. islands up in the northern part of canada yeah yeah but yeah yeah, Robert Rogers, nothing to do with it. I mean, barely, barely anything to do with it. Right. It was something that was kind of on his radar. The end. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. A, a couple other historical figures from the film. Uh, to your point, are kind of actually, well, first, uh, a fort itself. So, where they end up with, so they run into Rogers, and then he kind of basically gets them drunk, and then they wake up in a fort, right? And he kind of, it's like, how we kind of recruits them. In they get, yeah, they get Shanghai. <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah exactly they get shanghai into the rangers <laughs> uh they're at Cra they find themselves at crown point uh which was an actual fort built the same year 1759 so i don't know if the timeline works out perfect where it was just built or in, in theory it could be an anachronism where the fort was technically built after the raid at saint francis but it was the fort was built that same year 
And it's on the border between uh, New York and Vermont at the south end of Lake Champlain and is uh, supposedly the farthest north that George Washington ever traveled was to Crown Point here. And let's see, it's the other one they mention, I don't think we see him in the film, but they mention just a name they drop. They say Sir William Johnson. And obviously that's a super common name, William Johnson, there could be thousands of them. But there is actually someone from this time period in this location that fits the name Sir William Johnson. So there was a British officer in New York who fought in the French Indian War named William Johnson. And at the time of the film here, 1759, Uh, He had been the British superintendent of Indian affairs for the Northern District for about three years. So we don't see him, but it's likely that Rogers is operating under William Johnson's authority, which is probably why he's mentioned in name. So they didn't hyperlink him because he does, he's actually, I don't think he's even cast, but he is mentioned uh, and is a real person. And then the other one is they mentioned a couple of times. I think we, I didn't remember, remember seeing him. But if you go to like IMDb, it has a picture of the guy who played him. So apparently he showed up at some point. But uh, General Amherst, mm-hmm. he is also a historical, another British leader in the area at the time who has uh, five cities and a county in New England named after him. And then the quote here from Wikipedia is, Amherst is credited as the architect of Britain's successful campaign to conquer the territory of New France during the Seven Years' War. So at the time, Amherst was considered a big hero because he basically just helped drive all the Native Americans out entirely. But like he's now historically seen as a bad guy because his way of getting rid of the Native Americans was, you know, genocide. Uh, He was a big diseased blankets kind of guy. And they're not human. They just need to be exterminated like vermin kind of guy. So at the time... If you're advocating for the colonists and, you know, their supposed safety and you need to just eliminate anyone who's non-white, he was your guy. So, hence naming lots of cities after him and a county and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of advocacy today in New England to start uh, renaming (laughs) some of the things that are named after Amherst. Uh, The cities might be a bigger ordeal, but if there's like buildings and things like that, there's a big push to change a lot of those names. I think some of the things named after Amherst. Uh, actually have been renamed in recent years because of his policy of genocide toward the Native Americans. But yeah, he does show up briefly in the in the film here too. And then the Northwest Passage itself. Yeah, and, yeah I, I'm, still, I'm a little confused about the history of the Northwest Passage too and when they didn't actually find it you know, versus land versus sea. At the, at the end of the day, just any passage they could use to move goods uh, throughout. So yeah, because of all the ice, when you get farther north, a lot of these attempts to find a Northwest Passage not only failed, but were like complete disasters. And uh, there's a a famous one that failed in 1845, where two ships end up being kind of frozen in place in the ice, because, you know, obviously, depending on the time of year you get there, you're just kind of like stuck in the ice, you have to wait it out till spring kind of thing. They were frozen in place for a year before those who were left on the ships finally decided to beat it and just take you know let's just go on the ice and just kind of we can't stay here forever we have to leave so after a year let's leave these ships and then they were kind of just never heard from again after they left the ships and there's actually a really good book that's a fictionalized uh, version of this oh called the terror terror exactly yes oh that's a uh, Dan Simmons book. There's a they they made a, a miniseries about that. Oh, okay. So I I did the book on audio, and I have not yet done the miniseries. But I I, I love the premise of it. And again, this isn't necessarily tied to today's movie, other than these guys were also looking for the Northwest Passage. So I did want to talk about it, even though it's 1845, which is another almost hundred years ahead on our timeline here. But basically, he took the real life expedition of these guys that are frozen in the ice and then go missing, and tells it from their point of view. Because you do have ship's logs and stuff you can use on initially, but then at some point they leave the ice and he kind of still follows the captain and stuff as they leave the ice. But then he also adds in a supernatural or semi-supernatural element of there basically being a Yeti-type monster that's also attacking the ship while they're stuck in the ice. And right. Dan Simmons is the author. He's a really, really good author. He has uh, uh, his, His prose is really good. His his creativeness and the way he's been he's a kind of a he's not a household name but he's done a lot of books over several decades and is a is a pretty uh, well respected author and, and I thought the book was great I haven't done the miniseries that kind of uh, spells it out in I think like six episodes or so but that was really good 
And then it was actually then the expedition that went looking for, I think it was called the Franklin Expedition, that was the one that was trapped in the ice. A few years later, the mission that went looking for them did actually find a Northwest Passage in 1850. And if I had to guess, that was probably when they found the water route. And then the 1793 or whatever you said was probably when it was the kind of the combo land route, maybe. It would would be the distinction. And then at the end of the day, so yes, I guess I had kind of missed that they had actually found a Northwest Passage because I just assumed it was all ice. But even with climate change kind of lessening the ice, it's still not a widely used route because of the conditions with the ice and stuff. It just makes it less predictable and reliable as a means of transporting goods. So it is technically used to today, but not extensively. Land and air are just better choices if you're kind of moving goods around that part of the world. Uh, They mentioned, again, I would just get a couple couple random notes here, and then I want to talk about the filmmaker again here as we end. Uh, So they mention at the end, they get a letter from King George II. And just kind of fitting that into the timeline, he actually died in 1760. So this letter, whether real or not, that they get from King George at, at, at the end could be one of the last things he ever <laughs> wrote because he would have died just about a oh, year right, after yeah. the raid, raid on St. Francis. I mean, how long t- things take to send? I mean, in theory, there's a world where they're getting that letter after he's died. After he already died, yeah. Just kind of how the timeline works there. And then I just briefly, we didn't really talk about it in detail with the Crucible. So I just want to kind of give a brief mention to Harvard University because it was both a college where several of the characters in the crucible were educated and it's also mentioned because our main character is a Harvard dropout or gets booted the whole thing is he gets he got booted from Harvard for drawing right. a picture that made fun of like the president of Harvard or one of the professors or whatever it was so he's kind of yeah kicked out of Harvard uh Harvard was founded in in 1636 as new college in Cambridge Massachusetts so timeline-wise, that's just I mean, that's less than a couple decades after the whole Plymouth Rock thing. Something I hadn't really thought about before is I, I would argue that Harvard's prestige, and the same with like all the other Ivy League schools, is kind of just because they were first, and then it creates this feedback loop where if like all the educated lawyers and clergy went to your school and then they're successful, and then <laughs> oh, they right. start and then they yeah. start giving back to their school and always ensure that they're the school they went to has the best facilities and the best faculty. And it just kind of creates, right. uh, like, like what I called it, was like the opposite of a cycle of poverty. You just have, now it just has this cycle of success. So right. I would argue Harvard isn't a great school that happens to be old. Harvard is a great school because it's old. <laughs> and it just kind of has this feedback loop. Well, and because for like a hundred years, it was like the only game in town. So like no, everyone right. who was educated was educated at Harvard. Right, right. And then they're just giving back to Harvard and the new schools start to open, but then all the already more successful yeah. people are just, anyway, so just, again, just kind of this feedback loop right. of success and prestige. And then you kind of then make it harder to get into. And, and then that's going to have, and I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve its reputation that it has today. I'm saying it right. earned it by being first. Yeah. We've talked about this from the uh, Social Network episode uh, when we were doing world history and getting to the 21st century. We talked about the Statue of Three Lies and all that at, at Harvard. I think I don't know if we mentioned, though, that it's that the, the statue from the Social Network, the Statue of Three Lies, that's because uh, it says the statue says like John Harvard, founder of Harvard, or founder 1638. And it's like, well, one, Harvard yeah. was founded two years before that in 1636. John Harvard was not actually the founder. He was just like an early patron or whatever. Uh, and then the statue is not of John Harvard because right. no one actually knows what he looks like. And the uh, the artist just used a model to pose for John Harvard for the statue. So that's the three lies. Right. But what I, I think we missed, and I don't remember this at all, was this actually the same sculptor who did the Lincoln Memorial statue of Lincoln. It's the it's the same, oh, really? same guy. Yeah, yeah. And in like the 1880s was when he was doing that stuff. Both the the Harvard statue and the Lincoln Memorial statue. So same same guy there. So yeah, this, this film again, I, I apparently did like it uh, better than Logan. Again, not that I particularly loved it or anything. I just didn't <laughs> mind it. I didn't mind it. And then uh, it's it's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but that is with just six critics reviews, which a lot of times these old movies don't get reviewed right. by critics. So the six critics who bothered rating it on Rotten Tomatoes all said, yeah, sure, go ahead and watch it. But yeah, it is only a 68% on the audience side of things. How how hard is it to get to be a a certified critic on Rotten Tomatoes so that I can go give this movie a thumbs down and <laughs> take away to 100%? <laughs> you know what? Let's uh let's look into that because I would be definitely interested in joining that club. And uh so yeah, the film was directed by King I don't know how to pronounce his name, King King Vidor, King Vidor and I, I 
is actually a guy I always kind of assumed was like a foreign guy who came over to start doing uh, Hollywood stuff. He was born in the States and uh, King was just kind of like it. Well, Vidor is his family name. I think it was Hungarian, maybe, was like his grandparents had come over to the States and then King was maybe another family name or something. So yeah, his actual name is King Vidor, but he was he was a born and bred American guy. Early Hollywood guy, he was nominated for Best Director five times, most recently for the 1956 version of War and Peace. But he's also a guy who his career predates the establishment of the Oscars. So like one of his best known movies is like from 1925 before there even were the Oscars. It's a lot of stuff. There's stuff I've seen because these were early year best picture, nom- best picture nominees. So I've seen some of these, but they don't necessarily stand out. Movies like The Citadel, The Champ about a boxer, uh, one called The Crowd. And then the one from 1925 was uh, called The Big Parade that Wikipedia kind of says is his, his most famous film, a, sil- a silent film. And I was looking back up, like, oh, hey, was it the movie that might have won Best Picture in 1925 if they had had the Oscars then? And I'm like, oh, nope, that was the yeah. year of Battleship Potemkin. Oh, <laughs> So right. then I started yeah. looking at that whole year, <laughs> and uh, it's just kind of funny. So in the years before the Oscars, you kind of you forget, like, this is, oddly, it looked like a stacked year in 1925. So you have Battleship Potemkin by Eisenstein, who we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Eisenstein right. also had another film called, uh, called Strike, which I don't know anything about, but it's another Eisenstein film, and he's always good. Charlie Chaplin put out The Gold Rush that year in 1925. Oh. <laughs> uh, King Vidor has Big Parade. And again, then ones I'm not as familiar with that who knows on the level, but just as far as how big this year seems to be, there's a, there's a version of Fan of the Opera. There's a version of Ben Hur. Oh, I've seen screen, I've seen screen caps from that Fan of the Opera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I- I don't know anything about it. I've never seen the movie. I just, I've seen like iconic images, the, the Phantom yeah, from, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, we'll have to do a throwback here and just talk about the best movies of 1925 at some point. <laughs> but yeah, so King Vidor, kind of a well-respected guy, did get an honorary Oscar. Cause he never, never actually won best director despite the five nominations. Uh, but he did get an honorary like lifetime achievement award, uh, in 1979. So definitely a well-respected big time early Hollywood director who, yes, this was definitely one of his lesser films, but it is on his, his list. Oh, if you do want to hear more about the French and Indian war, we also discussed it back actually before Logan was part of the show here. I discussed it when I was talking about the last of the Mohicans. Oh yeah. Of course, going back, man, going back and looking at all those older episodes, just, uh, it is a little more stale without a, without a co-host. It's just kind of me reciting stuff. Robert Rogers was actually at Fort William Henry at one point. I mean, if not, during the battle where okay. it fell and everything, like we, not it, pre the events of Last of the Mohicans. Okay, okay. Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we get to a founding fathers musical. But no, not the one you're thinking. This is the film 1776.